is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here. And we love to tell your stories, too, and this one got sent to us along by a listener. And this is just one of those great stories about our country, its character, and you don't hear enough of these stories, and, well, we wanted to bring it to you. And joining us to tell his story is Chris Williams, and he lives in Conroe, Texas, 45 minutes north of the city of Houston. And, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. And, Chris, before we talk about what brought your story to our attention, tell us a little bit about your life, where you were born, your parents, uh, what, were, what were the important things to them, and uh, just a bit about your early life. I was born and raised in Louisiana, actually 60 miles south of New Orleans in a place called Point O'Hash. And, um, you know, my, my parents were people that just kind of helped people. They went out of their way to help people. And so we could be dressed up to go somewhere, go to church, whatever. And if somebody was broken down on the side of the road, my dad would stop and try to, to help them uh, fix the car or, or get to where they needed to go. And so they were just, in the end, you were watching their generosity in action pretty much most of your life. Yeah, definitely. I, we, we always had somebody living with us, and uh, I continued that tradition uh, with, with my family. Uh, we've always had uh, exchange students and people that needed a place to stay living with us, and it's great now to see my, my girls are grown, and they're continuing to do the same with, uh, with their family. So that's, that's amazing to me. So giving had just become a part of your DNA. And uh, let's talk about this thing that you just decided to start and what led to it. Talk about God's Garage. Well, God's Garage was, was born in my little garage at the house, and I just wanted to be able to help people that, uh, that needed help with their cars and couldn't afford to, to get them repaired. Um, and, and that was kind of born out of it. There were years where I couldn't afford parts for my cars, and I would just pray that the thing would run and get me to work and get me home every day. And I thought, man, one day I'm going to help people. And, and so that's what we did. We, we just started trying to help people out. And transportation is the lifeblood for so many people. And there's not a lot of help in that space. I mean, your car either runs or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, boy, you're in a world of hurting. So, Chris, sure. you, you start God's Garage. How do, how do people start to find out about it? Do you remember your very first... Uh, your first person that you were able to bring help to and, and, and just help out in this endeavor. And then what happened next? We, um, we helped a few people for, through word of mouth, um, but the, the big one came when I was on my way home from church one Wednesday night. It was dark and raining hard, and I could barely make out a couple people walking on the side of the road. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if they'll get in the car with me and let me give them a ride. And they got in. Well, it was a single mother and her daughter, um, and they were uh, on the way to their house, and, and I, I said, what are you guys doing? What, why are you walking in the rain? And they said, well, the truck's in the shop. And as we talked, found out the truck had been in the shop for three months. And I said, why is the truck still in the shop? And I was kind of getting mad at the mechanic for not releasing the car yet, and uh, she hung her head and said, we can't afford to, to, to fix it. And so that just broke my heart, and, and that really started us uh, in a... In a, a Sort of, sort of a more concerted effort to do more. And we built a shop at my uh, new house, uh, a 40 by 40 building, and we brought her truck in, fixed her truck up, and gave it back. And that really started the ball rolling. Um, there was, uh, there's been so many people that uh, there's great stories that, that we've helped. Um, and it's, it's just 
it's a blessing to me and to the guys that work with us to be able to do what we do. Blesses us as much as them. And how many people are you helping now? How many? Tell, tell us about the, the shop. Um, how many people are employed there? Uh, and how many people you're, you're helping at this point? Right now, we uh, have about 20 mechanics. Um, we are all volunteers. We have about 20 people on a cook team that uh, rotate and cook for us on the nights that we work. We usually, during the day, Monday through Friday, we have four, five, sometimes six guys working all day. And then Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, we have up to a dozen guys working until 9 o'clock or so. Um, so we have a, a lot of people helping out. We have a vetting team that goes through the applications. This year, we've given 41 cars away. So far, we're about to give about 10 more away before the end of the year. And next year, our, uh, our plans are to double that. We want to give away 100 cars next year. We've also repaired a bunch of cars as well. So we do the two things. We repair vehicles for single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military, and we give cars away to single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military. And, you know, there's a the quote that I just loved from you that I bumped across that said there was a time when you found yourself short on money and long on car troubles. And I guess <laughs> yeah. in the end, that, that's an empathetic power you have in all these volunteers. And my goodness, these volunteers, they have jobs during the day, right? Yeah, we have uh, everyone from teenagers after school to retirees to guys who are working full-time jobs and then come in at night and, and work at night. Uh, we have guys who do shift work, and when they're not on their shift, instead of being home and lazing around, they actually come and, and volunteer their time. It's a great thing. And they feel better about it, too. I mean, this is the thing about giving. I mean, it's you know, you're, you're giving to other people, but what you're getting in return, uh, Chris, talk about that. Man, uh, you know, we live in a selfish world uh, where we're bombarded with, with these uh, thoughts that you're number one and take care of yourself and put yourself first. And when we do that, uh, when we have problems and situations that arise, uh, they tend to be all-consuming, and they take us over. Well, when we get outside of ourselves and we try to help somebody else, our problems diminish. Uh, they're not so big anymore. And it's funny, you know, when we help other people, sometimes the things that we say to them and the things that we do for them uh, leads to some, some changes in our own lives. And, and what I just told that person that they needed to do, gee, I kind of need to do that too. Uh, so it's 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 a, a great thing for you to be able to refocus your energies in your life on on others instead of just on yourself. Well, hold that thought, Chris. When we come back, I want to talk about two particular stories, and then I want to share with the folks where they can go to help you and what you do. And that's www.godsgaragecar.com, www.godsgaragecar.com. And when we come back... More with Chris Williams of God's Garage in Conroe, Texas. And that's just 45 minutes north of Houston. His story, and my goodness, this is so many American stories. We're a good country and we're a caring country. These stories here on Our American Stories.
Lovely Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Chris Williams, and this is just a great generosity story. It's a great American story, and God's garage in Conroe, Texas, is what he started, and it started with just an idea, I want to help people, and this is a space where people really need help, and not enough people are hitting this space, and it's transportation, and not everybody lives in a big city where you can get on a bus and actually get where you need to go. The car is such a fundamental part of our lives, and without a reliable one, boy, life can get tough. And we heard Chris tell a story about that single mom and her daughter whose truck had been in a shop for three months. And she was, it sounded, Chris, like she was ashamed to admit that it had been there. And it sounded like you almost had to get that out of her. And there's a lot of shame involved in this, isn't there, Chris? There is. Uh, when, when you don't have reliable transportation, you go through the normal channels. You start with your family. Hey, can I, can I borrow a ride? Can you take me here or there? Um, after a while, they get pretty exhausted helping you out. And so you, you turn to your friends. And after a while, they get tired as well. So when we are able to repair a car for someone or, or give them a car, we're not just giving them transportation. We're restoring dignity and, and giving them uh, a, a new independence with respect. They can take care of uh, their, their needs without begging and borrowing. And so it's, it's a big life change for a lot of these ladies that we help. Indeed. And let's talk about a few stories in particular. Tell us about Susan and her special needs daughter. And Susan, uh, she came to us, uh, she filled out an application, and and we brought her out. And we actually had a news crew from a local television station come out. And we, we wanted to interview her as part of the process. And so we did so and showed her the garage. Well, what she didn't know is that we actually had the vehicle ready to give her. And so we gave it to her on, on live TV. Um, fast forward, uh, the gentleman, the, the reporter that did the story came back to me and he said, I've never done this. I've never gone back and, and done a follow-up on my stories in all of these years. But I'll, can, I, can I follow up? And I said, sure. Well, he had interviewed Susan at the, the onset before we gave her the car, um, met her daughter, and spent a little bit of time with her. When he went back to interview her, he, he actually spent the day with her. He came straight from that interview to me, and he said, do you understand what's happened with this lady? And I said, well, she's, uh, she's volunteering now at the garage. She's helping out with things, and, uh, yeah, she's, she's got freedom and, and independence. He says, no, you don't understand the change that has been made in this lady. I interviewed her. I'm a good judge of people, and she wasn't faking. She's a different person now. She has purpose. She has a sense of direction. She's telling everybody that she knows about the garage and what it can do for people, and she's, she's you guys' biggest fans, but she's a different person. And so that just warms my heart uh, to just see the change in people. Indeed. And, you know, one of the great pastors in this country in the 20th century is Rick Warren. And his book was The Purpose Driven Life. And for so many people, when you don't have that purpose, Chris, that's how we can get lost. Talk about another story, Lisa from the Salvation Army Shelter. Tell her story for us. Lisa filled out an application and uh, we, we vetted her. We talked to her on the phone and she came out. We were able to give her a car, but her story is uh, is something that you don't normally hear, uh, but that happens frequently. She is a uh, degreed, college-educated lady, succinct, articulate, well-dressed, uh, well-put-together. She came down for a job in Houston at a hotel chain. The hotel put her up in, in a suite, 
and um, provided for her car and, and necessities, and she was doing very well running the hotel uh, until the hotel was sold. And the new owners came in and fired everyone and said they were starting with their own people. So she found herself not only without a job, but without a place to live. Uh, after a, a few weeks had gone by and she'd, she'd stayed with friends and, and uh, run out of places to stay, she found herself in the Salvation Army. She ended up losing her car as she scrambled to find a new job. What a situation to find herself in after doing the things that we're supposed to do. She went to college. She got good grades. She, she went after a career in, in hotel management and found herself in a shelter. And she said, I never thought I'd find myself here. We gave her a car. She's been able to get a, a new job, uh, a new lease on life, and she's flourishing. Uh, again, this is, this is a life change for people. It's not, it's not a handout. Uh, it's, it's just a help out. And so what a, what a blessing to do this. Yeah, and we forget all of us who have that help readily available through social capital, through family, through a church, through a network. Um, we, I think many of us take that for granted, Chris. Talk about faith, and it's God's garage, obviously, but talk about the faith of the volunteers, you. What part did faith play in this? Well, it was a, uh, it was a big deal for me to, at the, uh, the, the end of last year, beginning of this year, to say, I'm going to go work full-time at this garage where there's no money. <laughs> there's no salary, there's no paycheck. But I, we felt like God was orchestrating this, and, and this was the time, and so we stepped out there. Uh, we call it God's garage because it's His. It's, it's uh, His blessings that we're just stewarding. Uh, it's not ours. It's not, it's not Chris's workshop. Um, so all of the, uh, the, the, the glory, if you will, goes to God. Um, the kudos goes to God, not to us. And, and then, as well, all of the uh, provisions, they have to come from God. Uh, we can't conjure up the money uh, ourselves, and, and so he provides that as well. So, yeah, faith is a, is a major thing for us. We, uh, we want to present our lives as a, uh, a testimony of, of how God's working through situations in our lives and what's going on. And so the guys that work with us, we develop relationships with, and we're able to, to minister to each other. The ladies that we help, we're able to minister to. Um, so faith is a, a major part of this. Yeah, you've got, in essence, a head and body shop, a gear shop, a bunch of gear guys have a ministry, Chris. Yes, yes. It's just beautiful. And tell me this, what, what was your family's reaction when you said, this is where the Lord's calling me, because that's how so many Christians talk to their family. This is where he wants me to go. And I've, I've heard some things like that from friends, and I go, are you sure that's what he wears? Are you sure that's where he wants you to go? Yeah. You know, my family was great because we've led a, a faith-led life, um, and my wife uh, thankfully has a, a good job. Uh, so she was on board and, and said, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. Yes, leave your great paycheck behind. Uh, and I was doing ministry. I was, I was pastoring, been pastoring for years. Um, so it's not like I was uh, trying to, to get out of a secular position, if you will, and get into a religious position or anything like that. Uh, but this was what we were supposed to do, and so we went for it. Uh, most of my friends are very supportive. They've seen God uh, in action in my life and realize that uh, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm following God's leading here, that, that it must be okay. It's going to work out. Uh, I've got a couple of friends that are kind of, you're doing what? for, And you don't get paid? How does that work? <laughs> so we, we've made adjustments, and, and we're doing what we need to do to make it work. Um, 
but again, what, I, mean, I can't explain to you how great the blessing is to do what we get to do, to work with the guys that, that are selfless and volunteering. And I'll tell you, almost all of our volunteers not only give a, a lot of their time, they give financially as well. Uh, and it just tells you how, how amazing this ministry is. That, is. that is an amazing story. You're looking to give away 100 cars next year, and that's on yeah. top of the countless repairs you do uh, for all the folks in need. And please, if you want to give or you want to learn more, go to www.godsgaragecar.com. That's godsgaragecar.com. And a final thought, Chris, for Folks who are on the fence that they feel like they are being called to do something. And, yeah, they've got to have that really awkward conversation with the wife or the wife has to have that conversation with the father and the kids. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk them off the fence if you can, Chris. I'll tell you, if if you feel like you're supposed to do something that you feel like God's leading you to do it, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of other people, but you still feel so strongly about it, that's obviously God. Uh, we know that you're, you're not going to go do something good uh, because the, the devil wants you to do it. <laughs> so, and if, it, and if, it's, if there's some, uh, some pushback on it, well, you know what? If I feel this strongly about it, then God must be in it, and I'm just going to open or go through open doors where they're open. Um, the other thing I, I do want to say is do something for someone else, no matter how small, no matter how big. Do something for somebody else. Get together with another person or five other people and do something good for somebody. Uh, because on our own, we can do some really cool things. But when we get together as a group, oh, my gosh, we can accomplish so much. But don't hold back. Don't wait for the one day. If I win the lottery or if I do this or that, do it now. Do something. Indeed. And great words. And again, we're talking to Chris Williams, his story God's Garage, not Chris's, God's, God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, about 45 minutes north of the great city of Houston. Chris Williams' story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show and we particularly love to tell stories about music because we can't imagine doing the show without it and moreover we can't imagine life without music. It's that moment where we all just shut up and either dance or listen and for a moment at least everyone in the room, everyone in the room is on the same page and this next story, well it's a rock and roll fantasy story about the band Boston and one particular dreamer. And by the way, the rock and roll band Boston sold over 75 million albums with classic hits like More Than a Feeling, Peace of Mind, Rock and Roll Band, Smokin', and Don't Look Back. 
Here's Greg Hengler with the story of a Home Depot employee and his favorite rock and roll band. When our favorite songs are played, we all do the same thing. We turn it up and we sing along. But the idea of living a rock and roll fantasy and being the lead singer in your favorite band is only played out on the big screen and on television, right? For everyone who ever dreamed of being a rock star, meet Tommy DiCarlo. He sings every night to tens of thousands of screaming fans, but only months before his gig as the lead singer of the legendary rock band Boston, 42-year-old Tommy wore the orange apron and worked on the floor at Home Depot in Charlotte, North Carolina, where his singing was confined to the shower and karaoke bars. Here's DiCarlo. I remember doing karaoke at a bowling alley. There was maybe 30 or 40 people. That, that Most of them were bowling. They weren't even listening to karaoke. So how did Tommy's life go from this well, let us know if we can help you, okay? to this Like most kids who came of age in the late 70s, Tommy DiCarlo was struck by Boston in the summer of 76 when the band released the momentous debut album, which perfectly packaged progressive rock with melodic pop. Back when I was around 12 or 13, a friend of mine bought the debut and lent it to me, and I never gave it back, DiCarlo says. I fell in love with the music, and especially Brad Delp's vocals. Boston never toured as much as its 70s counterparts, so DiCarlo didn't get to see Boston until the mid-90s. My first show, he says, I was able to meet Brad Delp. I wasn't among 30 or 40 people at a meet and greet, but after the show, I hung around by the buses and yelled Brad's name, and we talked for a minute. I'm really thankful I got to meet him. You got to tell him how much he loved Boston. But he was so wrapped up in the moment, he didn't even remember to have Delp sign the CD he was holding in his hand. Here's Tommy describing what life was like before living out his rock and roll fantasy. Um, pretty average. I uh, worked a uh, 40-hour week job at the Home Depot, and, and still am. I'm on the leave of absence there right now. DiCarlo's gig began with an unfortunate incident back on March 9th, 2007, when Boston's lead singer Brad Delp took his own life at age 55, leaving a note clipped to his shirt that said, I am a lonely soul. The band posted on its website, We've just lost the nicest guy in rock and roll. Here's DiCarlo. A lot of the fans, including myself, felt terrible about that. You know, it was, it was, it was a pretty rough time for, for a lot of folks. And um, I decided to go ahead and uh, write a tribute song in memory of Brad, and uh, it was a very short piece, just a couple of minutes long. 
But I didn't really know how to go about sharing that with the other fans, which is what I really wanted to do. So uh, I went ahead and um, my daughter, my daughter Talia, told me, hey dad, why don't you try MySpace? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll try it. Well, I got a message from another fan. That's the beauty of uh, MySpace and the, the friends you could make through the, uh, through the MySpace uh, page. Um, a, a, a Boston fan had uh, sent me an email saying, I love your tribute song. Uh, would you consider sending it to the band? I have a, an old email address. And I'm like, eh, okay, sure, I'll, I'll try it. It's funny because uh, back when I was a young teenager, I had a lot of folks, uh, a lot of friends would tell me that I had a very similar voice to the lead singer of Boston. They didn't know his name was Brad Delt back then, but, and I says, yeah, you know, uh, thanks. That was a great compliment. And over the years, uh, I would sing a lot of the Boston music and still get those same compliments. So when that person sent me that email and told me, why don't you try sending your stuff over to, to, to the Boston camp, I was like, ah, you know, may maybe. Here's that cover of Peace of Mind DiCarlo posted on MySpace. cover eventually reached the founder of the band, MIT mastermind and guitar geek Tom Scholes. Here's Scholes with the story. Actually, through my wife Kim, uh, I, I was walking through the uh, kitchen and she was listening to something on her uh, computer that was uh, up on the internet um, and I was, uh, and she said, uh, what do you think of this? And I said, well, um, I've never heard that uh, recording of Brad before, what show is that from? And she said, it's not Brad. And I said, uh, oh yes, that's Brad. And she said, no, this is not Brad. And uh, I didn't realize till I put it up on um, some big speakers and listened to the background music that it was in fact not Boston um, and it was uh, some sort of a karaoke track. And then I realized this wasn't Brad, but it sounded just exactly like him, and I, I know every nuance of Brad's voice, worked with him for 35 years. So I was, uh, I was shocked, but yes, I did, the moment I heard that, start to think, all right, maybe there is another future for Boston. And uh, uh, we, uh, we proceeded uh, cautiously but quickly and um, invited him to Boston to uh, make an appearance with us on stage at a tribute show last summer for Brad. So what was it like for this fan of Boston to pick up the phone and hear it was Tom Scholes on the other end? I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. It was, uh, it's, it's almost hard to put into words, really. I just could not believe it. It was, it was, I was shocked and I was excited. It was, it was just an amazing, it was an amazing day, believe me. DiCarlo's wife of 21 years was his number one groupie and his two teenagers saw their dad as the real American Idol. For Tommy, it was tough to leave his job at Home Depot in Charlotte, 
He liked his co-workers and rather enjoyed helping people find hardware. And he doesn't rule out going back to it at some point. In terms of lifestyle, not much has changed. DiCarlo says, We live in the same house, and the best part of my day is my kids and wife. And I get a lot of support from the people at the store. For the time being, though, he's just enjoying the ride. You know, just like, uh, what, the Boston song, I'm just taking my time, just moving along. Just moving on. You'll forget about me after I've been gone. And I'll take what I find. I don't want no more. It's just outside of your front door. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Our American Stories, and one of the great stories of the 20th century is The Great Gatsby. A 1925 novel written by F. Scott Fitzgerald that follows a cast of characters living on Long Island in the summer of 1922. Nick Carraway, the novel's narrator, rents a small home on Long Island next door to the lavish mansion of Jay Gatsby, a mysterious multimillionaire who holds extravagant parties but does not participate in them. We start at the end of this classic American novel set in the Roaring Twenties with a dramatic reading by Frank Muller. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at six o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends, already caught up into their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances and the matchings of invitations, are you going to the Ordways, the Hersheys, the Schultzes, and the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands, and last the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West, not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells and the frosty dark and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I see now that this has been a story of the West, after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners, and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. 
Even when the East excited me most, even when I was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bored, sprawling, swollen towns beyond the Ohio, with their interminable inquisitions which spared only the children and the very old, even then it had always for me a quality of distortion. West Egg, especially, still figures in my more fantastic dreams. I see it as a night scene by El Greco. A hundred houses, at once conventional and grotesque, crouching under a sullen, overhanging sky and a lusterless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk with a stretcher, on which lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house, the wrong house. But no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes' power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing, that perhaps had better have been let alone. But I wanted to leave things in order, and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away. I saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together, and what had happened afterward to me, and she lay perfectly still, listening in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking she looked like a good illustration, her chin raised a little jauntily, her hair the color of an autumn leaf, her face the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I had finished, she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that, though there were several she could have married in a nod of her head. But I pretended to be surprised. For just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. Then I thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye. "'Nevertheless, you did throw me over,' said Jordan suddenly. "'You threw me over on the telephone. "'I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, "'and I felt a little dizzy for a while.' "'We shook hands. "'Oh, and do you remember,' she added, "'a conversation we had once about driving a car. "'Why, not exactly. "'You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver. "'Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I?' I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were rather an honest, straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm thirty, I said. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. She didn't answer. Angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry, I turned away. One afternoon late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way, his hands out a little from his body as if to fight off interference, his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes. You know what I think of you. You're crazy, Nick, he said quickly. Crazy as hell. I don't know what's the matter with you. Tom, I inquired. What did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. 
I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent down word that we weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in the house, he broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes just like he did in Daisy's, but he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like you'd run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say, except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering... Look here, when I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident. And perhaps he had made a story about it all his own. I didn't want to hear it, and I avoided him when I got off the train. I spent my Saturday nights in New York, because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant from his garden, and the cars going up and down his drive. One night I did hear a material car there, and saw its lights stop at his front steps. But I didn't investigate. Probably it was some vinyl guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferryboat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh, green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there, brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, 
and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning... So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And again, that's Frank Muller, his reading of The Great Gadsby, the great 1925 novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. A great story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between. And, of course, we're always looking for your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, I heard it quite a long time ago. And it's Randall Wallace at the 59th National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And you're thinking, Randall Wallace, never heard of him. Well, he won Best Picture for a screenplay he wrote in 1995, and that screenplay was Braveheart. He was a co-writer on Secretariat and We Were Soldiers. He also directed those two movies, and they're gem. Really, really beautiful films. A family can watch them. You can watch them again and again and again. They're not simple, but they're filled with grace. And Randall delivered this keynote address. And here is how he started things. Movies are arguably America's most influential export. But guys like me aren't the natural choice to speak at a prayer breakfast. When I was directing We Were Soldiers down at Fort Benning, Georgia, I found time one morning to drive over to visit former President Carter's Sunday school class at his home church in Plains. I asked a friend who knew the Carters to save me a seat. And when I arrived, I found the seat was right next to Rosalind Carter. Apparently, Mrs. Carter, the gracious Southern lady that she is, wanted to be sure I felt at home. So I sat down next to Mrs. Carter, and Mr. Carter, from the pulpit, asked the congregation to open their pew Bibles to the passage that would be his subject for the day. Now, I grew up in Baptist churches. I was really familiar with that passage. So I decided to take advantage of that time to look at the hymn book for the words of a hymn I was thinking of using in the movie that I was directing. So as I was thumbing through the hymn book and everyone else was looking for the passage, someone touched my arm, and it was Mrs. Carter, 
and she handed me her Bible open to the proper passage. And I, I realized in that moment that Mrs. Carter had decided that since I was a Hollywood filmmaker, I didn't know the difference between a prayer book and a Bible. <laughs> it also occurred to me that I had the perfect chance to steal Mrs. Carter's Bible. <laughs> I mean, if I walked out with it and someone stopped me, I'd say, she gave it to me. And she'd have to say, well, I guess I did. And, and it was a beautiful Bible, too. It was, it was worn with her own hands. It was, it was marked with the joy and the tears of the First Lady. Imagine what it would bring on eBay. Um, to prepare myself for this morning, I've studied the, the speeches of those who've gone before me at this podium. They've advocated causes that are vital, and I can't compete with their accomplishments or their eloquence. So this morning, I thought we'd do something that, as nearly as I can tell, is unprecedented for a keynote address at the National Prayer Breakfast. I thought we'd talk about prayer. <laughs> now, I'm no philosopher. I'm not a preacher. I'm a storyteller, like Jesus. As nearly as I can tell, that's my only similarity to him. <laughs> Except for one other thing. I, too, have cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've lived a life of tremendous privilege. I, was, I grew up right down the road from here in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, Virginians are righteous and sober people, too proud to tell a lie. But I was born in Tennessee. <laughs> My father was born in Lizard Lick, Tennessee. The men in my father's family are Alton, Elton, Dalton, Lyman, Gleeman, Herman, Thurman, and Clyde. They, they called Clyde Pete, and nobody knew why. When I was a child, I suffered from asthma. I had attacks so severe I couldn't breathe at all. And I felt that if I panicked, I would die. And my grandmother would hold me upright in her arms all night long, and she would sing to me. And she would she'd tell me stories from the Bible or from her childhood. And to me, they seemed one and the same. And she'd look into my eyes, and she would smile. And, and I don't see blue eyes to this day without seeing hers. As I grew older, I found her looking at me in a different way. And uh, I said, Grandmother, why are you looking at me like that? And she said, well, you remind me of Ruth. Ruth was her husband, my grandfather. Uh, he died before I was born. So I really wanted to know about him, and I asked my father to tell me what he was like. And my father told me this story. And when we come back, we're going to hear this story and more. And again, we're listening to Randall Wallace. And my goodness, he's written some gems. 
some classics, American classics. And this is Randy Wallace actually telling one of the finest stories he's ever told about his own life, about his own faith walk, and about prayer. So when we return, a writer's story here on Our American Story. return to Our American Stories and to Randall Wallace telling his family story about faith and prayer at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. some years ago. And when we left off, Randall's father was about to tell him the story of his grandfather, who had died before Randall was born. During the Great Depression, my grandfather, who was a farmer, decided to build a country store to help feed his family. And there was no money and there was no wood, no wood to be had anywhere, but he found the wreck of a riverboat on the Tennessee River. And he salvaged that wood and he used that wood to build his store. But then he needed stock to sell in the store. And the one place in town that paid cash for labor was the plant where they froze huge blocks of ice. And men with tongs would grab these blocks of ice and sling them up onto wagons so that they could sell them to the farmers whose homes had no electricity. My grandfather was the only white man that took that job. All the rest were what they then called colored men. So his first day on the job, the supervisor, who was also white, came up to my grandfather and he said, now listen, I just want you to know that you and I are the only white men here. All the rest are colored men. So I cuss at him. If I forget myself and I call you an SOB, don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. And my grandfather, who is 6'3 and weighed 245 pounds, looked at this man and said, I understand completely. And I just want you to know that if you forget yourself and you call me an SOB, and I hit you in the face with a claw hammer. Don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. And in that one story, I understood everything about who my grandfather was and who I wanted to be. And I understood the power of a story. And my mother and father worked hard so that my sister and I could go to college. It was something my parents had never had a chance to do. It was impossible for them after World War II. My father was a salesman 
who loved his customers. And he won promotion after promotion until one day the company he had worked for for 20 years, a family-owned business, was sold to a group of investors who knew nothing about the business. But they believed the way to increase profits was to fire all the old guys and hire younger ones who were cheaper. And my father was one of the old ones. He was 38 years old. Now, I always believed that my father had lived his life wanting to please the father he had never had. His father had died before he was born. The grandfather he had told me about was my mother's father, not his. He had never been fired from anything. He was the best and the bravest man I ever knew. And he came apart. While he was in the hospital, my sister and I were farmed out to relatives. At one point, we lived in a house that had no indoor plumbing. When I told my father about that, he said, well, rich people have a canopy over their beds. I guess we've got a can of pee under ours. <laughs> And that's when I knew my daddy would be all right. <laughs> the last sale he made for the company that fired him was for $90,000. That was in 1961. The first sale he made when he came out of the hospital was for 90 cents. He worked 100 hours a week. He clawed his way back to tremendous success. God bless America. God bless my daddy. He told me I could go to college anywhere I wanted, and I chose the most expensive place possible. And he was so proud. But when I graduated, I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to tell the kind of story that would let a young man know who his ancestors were and who he might be. The kind of story that would keep a child alive through a lonely night. My first job was in Nashville, working at a theme park managing a show that featured live animals who played musical instruments. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I had a piano-playing pig <laughs> named Pigarachi. I had a drum-playing duck named Bert Backquack. You can imagine how proud my parents were. <laughs> but I kept writing. I moved to Los Angeles. I found an opportunity in television. I married, had two beautiful sons. 
I had purpose in my life, and I worked the way I'd seen my father work, with pride and with passion. I won a multi-year contract for employment. We bought an old house and remodeled it to be the family home. I was promoted to producer, and except for an occasional mishap with my tie, life was sweet. And then the Writers Guild went out on strike, and that caused the thriving company that I was working for to void my contract. And the strike went on forever. And when it was over, I had no savings and no job, and nobody would return my phone calls. I'm sure that's never happened where you've worked. And one day, I mean, I kept trying. I was always good at trying. But I was sitting at my desk and I was staring at nothing and I had a knot in my stomach and I looked down at my hands and they were trembling and I realized I was breaking down the way my father had. And I was afraid that I was betraying my father and my mother and my grandmother and my grandfather. And my greatest fear of all was that I was going to let down my sons. So I got down on my knees. I had nowhere else to go. And I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, what I really care about right now, what really matters to me, are those boys. And maybe they don't need to grow up in a great big house with a swimming pool and a lot of bathrooms. Maybe they need to grow up in a little house with one bathroom or no bathrooms at all. Maybe they need to see what a man does when he gets knocked down, the way my father showed me. And if that's what's best for them, then I pray you let me take it. But I pray if I go down in this fight, then I not do it on my knees to someone else. But standing up with my flag flying. I got up and I wrote the words that led to Braveheart. And what a heck of a story, folks. And what things were covered here. What he learned about his grandfather. You know, that one line back. Don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. That grandfather saying that back to that guy who said, I'm going to call you an SOB. And his grandfather saying, you call me an SOB, I'm going to punch you in the face. All due respect. And he'd never met his grandfather, but that one story, it told the whole story of the man, his character, his nature. And by the way, that boy wanted to be like that man. And this is the power of stories. It's why we tell them here on this show. It's the imitative power of stories and heroes. It's the most important thing in life. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable speech. And it's Randall Wallace's real-life story, raw, uncensored and beautifully put together and crafted. I'm sure he spent as much time writing this as almost anything he'd ever written. National Prayer Breakfast, Randall Wallace, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories.
And we've been listening to Hollywood screenwriter and director Randall Wallace deliver the keynote speech from the 2011 National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And what a speech this is. And I had just recalled it recently, and that's the great thing about this show. Who cares if it happened yesterday or the day before? Randall had thus far shared with us his life story from his family sacrificing everything to put him through the best schools, landing a dream job in Hollywood only to lose everything. And in his deepest, darkest moments, he finds the inspiration from the Lord to write Braveheart. Here's the rest of the story. Great writers like uh, Robert Frost and Jane Austen have said that an ending that does not surprise the writer won't surprise the reader. When I wrote about William Wallace standing on the battlefield, ready to die for what he believed, I felt it. And when I came to the end, I wept. Now, was that moment of prayer the single pivotal moment in the entire arc of my life? Of course not. My professor and mentor in college, the great Thomas Langford of Duke University, once told our class, there's no great decision in our lives that stands alone. The trajectory of every other decision we've ever made points our way to the future. Our lives are unfolding stories. They are moving pictures. If we took a freeze frame of Golgotha on the day that Jesus was crucified and asked someone unfamiliar with the story to guess who was the victor in that scene, they'd be unlikely to say, the one hanging on the cross in the middle. It was from that cross that Jesus cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry does not amaze me. What does amaze me is that while one of the thieves crucified next to Jesus mocked him, the other acknowledged the justice of his punishment and asked Jesus for help. And in the agonies of the crucifixion, Jesus was able to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. It seems to me that Jesus' response to that thief was not just the answer to that thief's prayer at the moment. It was the answer to every prayer that thief never prayed. If God is God at all, God hears our prayers whether we pray them or not. So why pray at all? Well, for me, it's not because God needs to know my prayers. It's because I do. Prayer sifts our souls like sand. Take any moment in life. Take this one. Here in a room resonant with power. Did we come this morning because we want to feel closer to that power? Do we go before God because what we want to do is use the power, the ultimate power we imagine that God has? Or do we get down on our knees to acknowledge the truth of our weakness, to rise again in the strength of that truth? 
Jesus said the truth will make us free. He also said the truth is God is love. And it is the prayer that comes from love. That's the prayer that goes to God. My father once told me a story of a man who was drowning in the ocean. He cried out, oh God, if you save me, I'll spend the rest of my life in your service. And a moment later, a boat came out of the fog and dragged him from the waves. And on the way back to the shore, the man lifted his eyes to heaven and said, of course, you understand I mean in an advisory capacity. <laughs> Life does not give us the option of advisory capacity. Tolstoy wrote in War and Peace that in a battle, one man throwing down his weapon and running away can panic the whole army. And in a panic, one man snatching up the battle flag and running back toward the enemy can rally a whole army, and no one but God knows what will happen and when. What if prayer is a way to glimpse God's true intentions, the divine purpose for each of us? I'm not a theologian. I'm not looking for logic. I'm only trying to understand my experience that prayer matters. Does it change the mind of God? I don't know. All I can tell you is that it changes me. When I was a boy, we sang a hymn, Footsteps of Jesus. Not everyone grew up singing that hymn. I'm sometimes thought of as a rarity in Hollywood, a filmmaker who would speak freely about faith, about prayer. But in reality, I'm not so rare. All of my fellow dreamers know too well the fleeting nature of beauty, the falseness of fame, the pettiness of power. And when I pray with or for my friends, my first concern isn't whether they are the followers of the footsteps of Jesus but whether I am. And if I've led you to believe that I'm any example of righteousness, then maybe you're just not familiar with our Tennessee talent for stretching the truth. Because <laughs> even if I could have stolen Mrs. Carter's Bible, I couldn't have kept it. You can own the pages, but you don't own the Bible till you've lived it. Some of you here lead nations. Some of you here lead the world. All of us here have one heart inside us. And it's within that one heart where the whole battle is fought. There's many ways to deal with the ultimate questions of God as there are people on the planet Earth. But every one of us must stand alone before all that made us and all that we have been and all that we might be. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you not trade all the days from that day to this for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and open your heart before God Almighty and say, I will lose my life and I will win it 
and loving in all the ways you lead my heart to love. You have a prayer. Pray it. Amen. And you've been listening to Randall Wallace. And again, that's the National Prayer Breakfast. And you can just Google that, National Prayer Breakfast and Randall Wallace, and watch it. Send the link to friends. Send this link to friends. Randall Wallace's National Prayer Breakfast. We'd love to hear your favorite prayer, a prayer that changed your life, prayer in your life, and how it's helped you, healed you. Send them to Our American Stories and you can do that by going to ouramericannetwork.org. And if you have a favorite prayer, send it to us. It's such a fundamental part of our lives. No one talks about it, and we should. And so many of us, it's that moment alone where no one else, no one else is editing, no one else is listening, and we just open ourselves up to a higher power and speak. Well, we just about have to speak what we really feel. Randall Wallace's story, his father's story, his grandfather's story, a story of prayer and faith in action. This is Our American Story. stories and you're listening to mark cohen's classic walking in memphis and it may be one of the two best songs ever written about a trip to graceland and the best one ever written we're about to get into and dig into in our story of the song segment and it's one of our favorites here on our american stories and this is the story of graceland as told by writer paul simon And Graceland is the title song of the album Graceland, released in 1986 by Simon. The song features vocals by the Everly Brothers. The lyrics deal with a singer's thoughts during a road trip to Graceland after the failure of his marriage. The song helped Simon win the 1988 Grammy Award for Record of the Year. And now, in his own words, on the creation of this song, here's Paul Simon. The Graceland story is a very uh, interesting story in that it's a very good example of how a collaboration works, even when you're not aware of it occurring. 
But track is one of the early tracks because I only did five tracks in South Africa. On uh, the sessions that I did with Forere, who was the accordion player, plays on Boy in the Bubble, we did a few other tracks. One of the tracks I said, you know, I, I like only the drums on this track. I don't really want anything else. I don't want the accordion or bass. I just want the drums. And the drums were... Uh, something like a kind of a traveling rhythm in country music. I'm a big Sun Records fan, and early 50s, mid 50s Sun Records. You'd hear that drum beat a lot. Like a fast Johnny Cash type of rhythm. And somewhere later in the week of recording, when I had uh, you know, put together a, a, a rhythm section of Ray Peary and Bagidi Kumalo and Isaac Machali as the rhythm section. I said to Ray one day, I like this drum pattern. Take a listen to it and see if it does anything for you. You know, it sounds like a kind of a country thing to me. So he started to play his version of American country, Ray, uh, he was in the key of E, and then uh, he was playing, uh, you know, like he was, because he's playing electric, but he would, he would be up over here, you know, like. Uh, uh-huh. And the drums are going down. Oh, then he went. which is a relative minor chord to that key. I said, hey, that's interesting that you played a minor chord because all the music that I've been recording with in South Africa, with the exception of the Sutu music. It was all three chord major chords. There was never a minor chord. There were times when I would ask Black Mombazo to sing a minor chord. They couldn't sing a minor chord. They just didn't hear it. So he put in this, uh, this minor chord, and I said, that's, that's interesting, why'd you do that? He said, I was just imitating the, the way you write. Well, I said, we'll play this lick over it. Da, do, dee, da, da, do, da, do, da. Ba, do, dee, da, ba, do, dee, da, da, do, dee, da, da. In an overdub. And he did, and it was a really nice, really nice mix. And Begidi was playing. Dun, 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 dun. beautiful emptiness to it. I think that's part of what makes me think that it's something like Sun Records, you know, when it was just a few instruments and nothing really much except slapback echo and the song. There's also another 
uh, connection musically that's in there, and that is, there's a pedal steel guitar in there, which is, a, of course, a, you know, like a, a country instrument, but it's also a West African instrument, and the guy who played it, uh, his name was Devola Adejapu. He played with uh, King Sonny Ade's band. You know, I wanted to uh, hear what that lick sounded like. Seemed like it would be a very good pedal steel lick. And it was a great pedal steel lick, but it was also a great Ray Peary performance. What's interesting is that Ray reaches into his memory for some kind of approximation of what he thinks of as American country, and Begitti plays straight ahead to the African groove, and so the, the two, you know, the two musics find a commonality, and the lyric expresses that. I'm going to Graceland. Don and Phil Everly came in and sang. I always heard that song as a perfect Everly Brothers song. Poor boys and pilgrims with families and we are going to Graceland. I was down in South Africa in, I think, February, maybe early March, and I think I didn't go down to uh, to Memphis until maybe May, brought it home and I was trying to write to it. I would, um, you know, sing these lines about Graceland. Graceland, because I'm going to get rid of the Graceland part because, I mean, what's Graceland got to do with South Africa or anything like that? So that's got to go. Just a question of, uh, you know, what I'm going to replace it with. But then I couldn't replace it with anything. I was always singing that. And finally I said, I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to go to Graceland. I've never been. Maybe I'm supposed to go on a trip and see what I'm writing about. So I did. And, uh, and then I began to describe the trip, uh, the Mississippi Delta, because I was driving up uh, from uh, Louisiana, uh, where I had cut uh, the Zydeco track on Graceland. I was driving from Highway 61. You know, I'm just writing about what the countryside looked like. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. And finally got there to, you know, to Graceland and just, you know, made a tour through Graceland. But what's interesting about all of this is that the part of me that had Graceland in my head, I think subconsciously was reacting to what I first heard in the drums, which was a kind of Sun Records country blues amalgam. And what Ray was doing was mixing up his oral recollections of what American country was and what kind of chord changes I played. song really is just one sound evoking a response 
And that eventually became a lyric that evoked, instead of being specifically about a South African subject or even a political subject, it became a, a traveling song that had to do with the original sound, which was the drums and, and, uh, and Sun Records and Graceland. That's really the secret of world music, is people are able to listen to each other and uh, make associations and play their own music that sounds like it fits into, a, into another culture. And uh, that's, how it, that's how it works, and that's how it worked then, the story of Graceland. And what a story it is. And by the way, Simon is being humble, exceedingly so. These lyrics, read them one day. They'll break your heart. What he's going through, what his ex-wife was going through, his son. But I've reason to believe will be received in Graceland. Always in the end, Simon's great lyricism, his great musical talent. You heard it all here, a remarkable story of his song, Paul Simon's very best song, The Story of Graceland, here on Our American Stories. 